Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is Revolutionary Love by Michael Lerner, a political manifesto to heal and transform the world. This is from the introduction. We Earthlings need to build a fundamental change of consciousness into ourselves and in every part of our national and global society in order to achieve the economic and political changes necessary to prevent the destruction of the life support system of Earth, in order to end global and domestic poverty and wealth inequality, to defeat racism, sexism, homophobia, and other forms of xenophobia, to protect human rights, to achieve social, economic, and environmental justice, and to achieve lasting global peace. This new consciousness is possible and can emerge through embracing revolutionary love, the struggle for a caring society, and a new bottom line in all our economic, political, legal, educational, and cultural institutions. This manifesto is written to show you how this can happen and how you can help make it possible. Liberal and progressive movements need to move beyond a focus on economic entitlements and political rights to embrace a new discourse of love, kindness, generosity, and awe. These are not some new agey smile and be nice formula or let's get into self-transformation before we change society kind of thinking. I'm calling for both our American and global societies to embrace a new bottom line so that every economic, political, societal, and cultural institution is considered efficient, rational, and or productive, not according to the old bottom line of how much these institutions maximize money, power, or ego, but rather how much they maximize love and generosity, kindness and forgiveness, ethical and environmentally sustainable behavior, social and economic justice. This new bottom line seeks to enhance our capacity to transcend a narrow utilitarian or instrumental way of viewing human beings and nature so that we respond to other people as embodiments of the sacred instead of thinking of them primarily in terms of how much they can serve our interests. And also so that we can respond to nature not solely as a resource for human needs but rather through awe, wonder, and radical amazement at the beauty and grandeur of this universe. I call this new consciousness revolutionary love and its goal is to create the caring society, caring for each other and caring for the earth. The vehicle to create this new consciousness we will call the Love and Justice Movement and eventually the Love and Justice Party. The revolutionary possibility of love is the kind of love that breaks through those distortions of consciousness that make it difficult to implement a national environmental policy or to end the many forms of oppression that permeate our world. To really embrace revolutionary love requires us to develop a strategy way beyond anything currently being given serious attention in the media, the political parties, and even many of the social change movements. And it requires us to move beyond what seems realistic in terms of the contemporary frame of discourse. Yet there is no alternative if we're to solve the environmental crisis and prevent our society in the coming decades from moving further and further into reactionary nationalism and repression of our own humanity. We need a global mobilization of billions of people to solve the problem. And this manifesto outlines the first steps to making possible such a mobilization. To understand the urgency, let's consider our current environmental crisis. In 1992, thousands of scientists issued a collective statement warning of the impending dangers to the life support system of planet Earth. 25 years later, in December 2017, 15,364 scientists from 184 countries signed a new statement that reads, in part, 
Since 1992, with the exception of stabilizing the stratospheric ozone layer, humanity has failed to make sufficient progress in generally solving these unforeseen environmental changes. And alarmingly, most of them are getting far worse. Especially troubling is the current trajectory of potentially catastrophic climate change due to rising greenhouse gases from burning fossil fuels and agricultural production, particularly from farming ruminants for meat consumption. Moreover, we have unleashed a mass extinction event, the sixth in roughly 540 million years, wherein many current life forms could be annihilated or at least committed to extinction by the end of this century. Humanity is now being given a second notice. We are jeopardizing our future by not reining in our intense but geologically and demographically uneven material consumption and by not perceiving continued rapid population growth as a planetary driver behind many ecological and even societal threats. By failing to adequately limit population growth, reassess the role of an economy rooted in growth, reduce greenhouse gases, incentivize renewable energy, protect habitat, restore ecosystems, curb pollution, halt defaunation, and constrain invasive alien species. Humanity is not taking the urgent steps needed to safeguard our imperiled biosphere. End of quote from the scientists. The book is Revolutionary Love by Rabbi Michael Lerner. is the Tom Hartman Program. And welcome back. Just a reminder, we've got a brand new podcast. It's called The Science Revolution with Tom Hartman. It's over at Apple Podcasts, and I think it's pretty much at any place you get podcasts. It's all the, the usual suspects. And uh, in our first edition that just went up, how the insect apocalypse could affect all life on Earth. Learn about the forever chemicals that are in our drinking water. Uh, with senior scientist David Andrews in Geeky Science. If you're stressed out, pay attention. We've got solutions for that. Fox News thinks liberals are causing California's wildfires. Trump is fighting the wind. And why Berkeley, California is banning natural gas in new homes. So a lot of interesting stuff. Check out the Science Revolution podcast. It's a, it's a nice little more or less half-hour show that we're putting up once a week over there. And Congressman Mark Pocan is with us, the co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus kind of the head progressive guy or one of the two. He has kind of picked up the mantle of Brunch with Bernie. I'm so grateful for that, Congressman Pocan, and I'm grateful for your great leadership of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. You are the co-chair of that caucus, along with Pramila Jayapal, and all the great legislation you've introduced and all the marvelous things you've done. Thank you for being here with us. Well, I thank you, Tom. It's a great hour every week to talk to folks from around the country. It's like a, an extra town hall a week, uh, which I appreciate. And I think it's a good way to make sure we're addressing the questions that people have. And uh, I appreciate using your program for this format. Yeah, thank you. And so it is. Congressman, the Judiciary Committee, Jerry Nadler's committee, has announced that next Wednesday, a week from today, they are going to be starting the, I guess this would be the official well, I guess the Intelligence Committee's also official impeachment inquiry, but judiciary is traditionally where it ends up. I mean, going all the way back to Andrew Johnson, I believe. What should we expect? Well, I think a lot of us are learning this as we go through it, because the last time this has been done, almost all of us weren't in Congress. But this is the proper committee, the Judiciary Committee, where any articles of impeachment would go. So I think what they're doing is they're starting that process. We've been told by Adam Schiff that his report should be coming shortly after Thanksgiving to Congress. And then there will be the decision about what, if any, articles of impeachment and what they are going to say. And my guess is because things, I think, were very effectively laid out through the Intelligence Committee's process, there's a very clear path to go on the articles of impeachment uh, regarding the president violating his oath of office, breaking the law and asking a foreign leader to get dirt on a political opponent and holding up the funding in doing so. That's, in most aspects of life, bribery or extortion, and that's what the president did. And now we have plenty of people, including his own political appointees and longtime State Department officials who aren't Democrats or Republicans saying this, 
So I think uh, judiciary will take this up, and I wouldn't be surprised that uh, something could come up before Christmas. Uh, they've told us that the week before Christmas that we weren't supposed to be in, we should be planning on being in. And I think that and a few other bills that we're getting done are going to occupy the next three weeks. This sounds fascinating. I, just before we go to the calls, Trump threw Rudy Giuliani under the bus. He was being interviewed by Bill O'Reilly for O'Reilly's podcast. And, you know, O'Reilly repeatedly, uh, three times, basically said, did you send him to Ukraine? Did he go on your behalf? And three times Trump said no. There's something biblical about this. (laughs) Peter comes to mind, right? How do you think that's going to affect things? You know, when Giuliani figures out that he's next on the Michael Cohen list. Well, first of all, anyone who trusts Donald Trump, including at least a couple ex-wives, kind of realize this is not a guy that you can really trust. And people who decide to do business with someone like that often are used to those kind of consequences because that's how they themselves operate. In this case, I find it interesting that Rudy Giuliani keeps dangling having some information that's an insurance policy against anyone doing anything to him. You know, this is like one of those bad South American soap operas um, that people spoof. in a way how it's all unfolding but unfortunately it's real life and it's the president and uh that's what we're going to try to get this done expeditiously because this part of it is very clear there's not like more witnesses we could bring in that could be any more clear than what the president did and again it wasn't a single phone call that the president's trying to pretend it's about it's months and months and months of a strategic campaign to force this leader to announce an investigation that donald trump could gain personally and politically so uh, that's I think easy for us to move forward on. I think 70% of the people I saw think the president did something wrong. I understand the polling around impeachment may be a little tighter because that's how this country is politically. But 70% of the people said the president did something wrong. He clearly did. And we're going to move very quickly on that. Yeah, corrupting a new democracy. It just doesn't get worse than that, politically speaking, anyway. Jim in Salisbury, North Carolina, you are on the air with Congressman Mark Pocamp. Congressman, my question has to do with the Patriot Act. It's my understanding that you and your co-chair and several members of the Progressive Caucus voted for the Patriot Act. What was that about? Yeah, Jim, thanks for asking that question, because there's a couple groups that unfortunately got to get their work a little better and sharper in Washington if they're going to impact the Patriot Act than they're doing right now because they don't show a lot of knowledge about the process. And what happened is the Patriot Act had a three-month extension under the continuing resolution to keep government open until December 21st, I believe it is, 20th or 21st, along with the pay increase for military and a bunch of other things that happened in this short-term extension so that we didn't have another government shutdown. And we have been working both on the Judiciary Committee and the very morning of that vote with the Intelligence Committee on having some major changes made to the Patriot Act as it moves forward, not allowing them to keep all the data they collect and a lot of other things that we're trying to get done. That strategically is where all the groups have been trying to get these things done, but unfortunately they said vote against this. Well, we weren't going to close down government. Uh, That would be silly for a simple three-month extension. And should we do that because of the process that we're in right now? This would have been written by the Senate for a long-term extension in the exact same form it is, and none of us want to see the Patriot Act in that form. So, Jim, I'm really glad you asked, because there's a a number of of groups, including one that I've been a longtime paid member of, the ACLU, and um, Demand Progress, that are just wrong. Um, They don't really understand the process. They should have called us ahead of time, and we could have explained it. We actually did reach out and explain it to them. But I think if that's the strategic thinking that's behind this, I'm I'm a little worried where our partners are going to be in helping us get the real changes that we want to enact so that the Patriot Act doesn't look like the Patriot Act anymore. This was just the FISA provisions of the Patriot Act. That wasn't the entire Patriot Act. There's just a lot of misinformation out there. And, Jim, I really appreciate that question. That's remarkable, because I I got that press release from one of those groups, and I went on the air and said, call your congressman and say, tell him to vote no on the Patriot Act renewal. And wow, now I understand. Thank you. Jill in Manila, Indiana, you are on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hi, Tom. Hi, Congressman Pocan. Thank you for all that you do. I have a question. I'm from Indiana, and I am a Democrat, have no representation. I have nothing but Republicans who are representing me in the state. And I wanted to know which is the best way to get a hold of them, like through an email, 
or by phone calls because I feel like when you call them and you give negative feedback that they don't really get those messages. So maybe a well-constructed email to show our disgust in the way that they're acting might be a better thing and how often to do that. Thanks. Yeah, Jill, those are awesome questions, and thank you, because you're being strategic about how to get your advocacy done. The single best thing, without question, is face-to-face. If you can go to a town hall or set up a meeting with your member of Congress, be at an event they're at, you know, they're seeing you, they're looking you in the eye, and you can actually have a real conversation. Second best would be a personal email or letter, although to be perfectly honest, letters sent to Washington get held up about three weeks because they have to be screened for rice and, and other toxins. So a good personal email, not a mass email, but a personal email telling your story is great because it gets right into the office. We keep track of every single contact. The phone is easy, right? Sometimes if you want to get a call in real quickly, the problem is generally that's being answered by an intern in an office, and it's a very short note about what the call's about, so you're not going to be able to put as rich of information in that. And then the lowest form is always the mass postcard that maybe you signed, and that's about it. We know how much effort put into that. So So those are the order of ways to contact your office. So thanks for asking. Maverick in Edmonds, Washington. You are on the air with Congressman Pocan. Uh, Greetings, gentlemen, from the far upper left in Ecotopia. So I watched most of the, nearly all of the hearings on the impeachment, and I learned something that there's a benefit to Devin Nunes being there, and that is that anybody that accidentally ingests poison all they have to do is listen to Devin Nunes' voice, and they'll immediately evacuate both ends of their body, thereby eliminating the poison. Oh, Maverick. I had to slam that. I had to slam that guy because I really could not stand listening to him. Yeah. My question for Congressman is, I hope I didn't miss Yeah, you this. can't, you know, you can't buy Ipecac in the drugstore anymore because it's, it's considered dangerous. So, you know, yeah, okay. Maverick, I'm sorry. Uh, that's all right. Yeah, are there more articles of impeachment impending i'm just curious it seems like are we hinging this whole thing on one that's my question yeah so maverick around what he did in the ukraine there'll be several articles of impeachment around that is my guess it hasn't been fully discussed because that's what the committees are doing as they're moving through this now truncated process because you've got the first part done but i'm assuming it'll be obstruction because clearly the president didn't let all these people come and testify we got plenty of evidence on what he did, but the fact that, again, he claims his innocence, that he'd like to have these people testify. Like, I mean, you think Devin Nunez wants to make him do it out of both ends. I think the president, you know, when he says stuff like that, no one can actually believe that unless you're the, the biggest racist and, and just therefore you're going to follow no matter what he says. I mean, clearly, he doesn't have anyone who can say he's innocent, therefore he couldn't send anyone to say he's innocent in Wisconsin. That's a smell test. So there'll be things like that listed out in the articles of impeachment as my assumption that we'll be moving on. And then the six committees that have jurisdiction over all areas that could be impeachable, and there are six overall out of the 21 standing committees, are going to keep doing the investigations they've been doing around things like the emoluments clause, his taxes, etc. So there's going to be lots uh, more happening, and there will be more than just a single article of impeachment, I'm quite sure, in what we're going to be looking at next month. We have just a little less than a minute before we hit a break. What is the situation with the House Ways and Means Committee? I mean, that's the only committee that the law says the chair has the legal right to request the president's tax returns and simply get them. And Steve Mnuchin is blocking that, as is the IRS commissioner, who I guess used to be a tax lawyer for Donald Trump. What's going on with that? I know it's in the legal process, and I thought I saw something where, is this the one that's going to the Supreme Court, or is that a different one? I'm not sure. Um, I I thought that was the state of New York. I thought that, you know, but I'm not sure. There's so many lawsuits around this, but we are in the legal problems of this right now, much like why we had so many problems in getting witnesses for the Mueller investigation. They're just defying what has been, you know, if you got a subpoena, you show up because that's the law. And instead, they've been signed to run the clock out for legal reasons. So in this case, same thing. It's clear the law says that our chair of the Ways and Means Committee should see the tax returns, and they're trying to run out some kind of a legal clock. Yeah, the other thing I think is crazy is that the administration just turned over all this paperwork 
paperwork in response to a federal court FOIA request. You know, a federal judge said you must do it. Why is a federal judge why, or a FOIA request from a citizen, why does that have priority over a subpoena from Congress? That seems backwards to me. But, yeah, they make no sense on how Yeah, yeah I, I hope this all gets yeah. straightened out once and for all. Oh, we all love that holiday seasons, don't we? Family, friends, pictures, vote videos, all that kind of stuff, uh, capturing every laugh and smile and wrinkle and crow's feet and, oh, no, all those telltale signs of aging front and center on your holiday cards and your pictures. But imagine that they're gone, poof, in minutes, without Photoshop. No risky, expensive surgery. Plexiderm is a clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates your wrinkles, crow's feet, and under-eye bags in minutes. Don't believe it? Try it. You look just like you, only 10 years younger. Plexiderm goes on clear so nobody will know you're using it unless you tell them, including that judgmental family member. You know who I'm talking about. Just in time for the holidays, go to Plexiderm.com and use my code HARTMAN, H-A-R-T-M-A-N-N, for 50% off plus an additional 10 bucks off. That's right, 50% off plus an extra $10 off. This offer is also available by calling 1-800-741-7998. That's 1-800-741-7998. Again, 1-800-741-7998, or visit Plexiderm.com today and use my code HARTMAN at checkout. Barry in Los Angeles, listening on KPFK. You're on the air with Congressman Pokian. Congressman, this goes back a couple of weeks when constituent service was on your mind, and uh, you had made some mention of, uh, of the importance and my question has to do with what is a citizen's recourse when constituent service is a complete abject failure in both the congressional district and in both senatorial offices? Very unfortunately, I don't have an actual recourse you can do other than you reach back out to the office and say, this isn't answering my question. My question is, this is why I tell people the single best thing you can possibly do is have face-to-face -face contact with a elected official because you can actually make sure they're understanding everything that's been asked and you can also press them and say no you didn't get me the right answer this is the answer i need can you guarantee you'll get me that or will you promise to get me that you can then say it and, and quite honestly at that point you're far more likely to get making sure their office is getting everything you need so that's what i'd recommend now having said that understand we each represent in the house over 700,000 people, and you're from California, your senators have a whole lot more people than that, and yet their offices aren't, I don't think, that much bigger than the Wisconsin offices for a senator. It's a little hard to get that information. So I might say try your House member again first, because they can probably access you a little easier with 700,000 people in their district, and then just be persistent, and, and if you need to, get to that member's face to be able to really have that conversation to make sure they really understand what you're asking. Like show up at a town hall or town physically hall. visit their office when you think that they're there? That kind of thing. Yeah, I think it's hard to, because it's hard to, I don't know how I even, when I'm in the office, I rarely know it's not that often because you're traveling around the district. Right. But that means I'm going to events that are usually posted and go to those events if that person's there and you can also have the conversation there. But at town halls are by far the easiest and best, but you don't have them every month. Right. So then going to and a lot of Republicans don't have them at all. Have, right. And sometimes, but usually the office will have office hours, at least that's with staff. Sometimes just making sure they actually understand the right question. And I'm not sure in Barry's situation if it's they just didn't deal with his problem or they didn't address the right question. But at least there you can make sure the question is understood for them to address. David in Columbus, Ohio, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hi, Congressman. My question is on campaign finance reform which is really the basis of all corruption. Uh, I feel that progressives should mark themselves as not taking corporate donations and that we should have a method for voters determining which candidates are the ones that aren't going to be influenced unduly by corporate donations. Yeah. So, David, um, thanks for that question. So I would say a couple of things. First of all, I think the biggest problem around campaign finance is this large amount of anonymous money that gets spent with these groups that have innocuous sounding names that far exceed any campaign limits. Those are without question because of the amount of money they have the biggest problem. 
to your point, though, you know, there are now 60 people in the House and I think 20 in the Senate. I think it's a quarter of the Democrats in the Senate, I was told, are not taking corporate money. So it's something that's growing. And that's a very, very good thing, because prior to this last session, that number was probably a quarter of that. Now, it's a little easier for a U.S. senator with a big district to run a campaign on small dollar donations, because unless you have a high media profile, it doesn't work as well. I'll be honest, I don't take corporate money. I followed many people that just came in that didn't take corporate money and they got elected. And it will cost my campaign 185000 over a cycle, over two years. But that's fine. It's just unless you have the ability to really raise a lot of those small dollar donations, which often for a member of Congress either means a higher profile or, quite honestly, groups being a little more active and helping that candidate get small donations, it's harder for us to convince other people to go that route. I am very glad to, because that way I never have to question anything I'm doing uh, when a, a company comes. Uh, that's not an issue. But I, I just want to be real clear, David. I think you know, we've got to address the big anonymous money in those 527 and other groups first and foremost. Secondarily, let's address the issues around corporate money. And then let's address uh, also the number of lobbyists. The pharmaceutical industry has 50. 1,500 lobbyists in Washington, D.C. That's almost three per member of Congress. I don't know who my three are, but that's an awful lot of lobbyists. That's mind-boggling. That is absolutely mind-boggling. For one industry. Yeah, yeah. He is the co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. He represents the 2nd District of Wisconsin and the U.S. House of Representatives. His website is pocan.house.gov, and you can tweet him at repmarkpocan. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is by Ruth Marcus, Supreme Ambition, Brett Kavanaugh and the Conservative Takeover. This is from the prologue. Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy had a request. Would President Trump have a few minutes to speak privately? It was April 10th, 2017, a sparkling spring morning in Washington, and Kennedy was at the White House to preside over the ceremonial swearing in of the newest Supreme Court Justice, Neil Gorsuch first time in history that a sitting justice had sworn in one of his former law clerks to join him on the bench. Just 80 days into Trump's chaotic presidency, the confirmation of Gorsuch represented a rare and welcome victory for the beleaguered new administration, reeling from court defeats of its travel ban and despite controlling both houses of Congress, unable to repeal President Obama's signature health care law. Perhaps most important, as the prominent conservative lawyers, activists, and judges assembled in the Rose Garden that day understood, Gorsuch's addition was just one step, necessary but not sufficient, in the three decades-long conservative bid to cement control over the high court. This effort had been as frustrating as it was lengthy. Seeming opportunities for dominance repeatedly slipped away with Republican nominees, including Kennedy himself turning out to be less reliably conservative than advertised. But Republicans have learned from these costly errors, assembling a farm team of potential nominees whose judicial records could be carefully scrutinized to detect any risk of ideological deviation. Gorsuch was among those who came bearing the seal of approval of the Federalist Society, the conservative legal group that had made itself the central actor in this court-shaping exercise and was playing an even more outsized role in the new administration. Trump took pains to single out one man who was not in the Rose Garden that day, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, for all he did to make this achievement possible, quoting Trump. Indeed, everyone present knew that McConnell had been the indispensable man leading to that moment. Had it not been for McConnell, President Obama would have filled the vacancy created by Justice Anthony Scalia's sudden death in February 2016, and Justice Merrick Garland would be sitting on the high court, anchoring a newly fortified liberal majority. McConnell, with his audacious announcement that the opening would not be filled, no matter that Obama had 11 months remaining in his term, had avoided that fateful outcome. His intervention meant that Gorsuch now occupied Scalia's seat, a conservative for conservative swap. The next vacancy was almost certain to be the far more critical one, shifting the court's balance instead of affirming it. On that score, all eyes were on the 80-year-old Kennedy, then serving his 30th year on the high court and by dint of age, years of service and political allegiance, the most likely to depart. The swing justice on an already conservative court, Kennedy was pleased about Gorsuch, but he had another former law clerk in mind as he was ushered into Trump's private dining room for an unusual session with the president and White House counsel Don McGahn. 
Justices are routinely invited to the White House for social events, state dinners, and holiday parties. But at least until Trump took office, such one-on-one -on -one meetings were rare in the modern era. With its finicky notions about preserving the appearance of judicial independence. Unlike the relaxed days when justices did double duty as private counselors to presidents such as Franklin Roosevelt and Lyndon Johnson. In the chronically leaky Trump White House, aides took pains to keep the Trump-Kennedy meetings secret. There were no public reports about the session, and only a few senior officials ever learned what Kennedy said to Trump that day. The justice's message to the president was as consequential as it was straightforward, and it was a remarkable insertion by a sitting justice into the distinctly presidential act of judge picking. As a candidate, Trump had upended tradition by issuing a list of judges. It ultimately grew to 21, including Gorsuch, from which he pledged to pick his Supreme Court nominees. Now Kennedy had a recommendation for Trump's list. You named one of my former clerks, Kennedy told Trump. You should think about another one, Brett Kavanaugh. When Anthony Kennedy spoke, the Trump White House listened, with good reason. During the campaign, when Trump, against all expectations, emerged as the Republican nominee and ultimate victor over Hillary Clinton, the issue of judicial selection had been a utilitarian means to an electoral end. The socially conservative and evangelical voters Trump needed to win were deeply, understandably suspicious of the thrice-married, once-democratic New Yorker. They were particularly dubious about how Trump would approach the critical task of shaping the federal judiciary, especially the Supreme Court. The list of high court candidates that Trump produced with the help of the Federalist Society, upending convention with typical Trumpian bravado, was explicitly aimed at calming their concerns, and it succeeded beyond the wildest expectations of its creators. On Election Day, more than a quarter of Trump voters identified the Supreme Court as the critical factor in determining their vote. White, evangelical, born-again Christians broke 81% for Trump to 16% for Hillary Clinton meaning that Trump outperformed previous Republican nominees Mitt Romney, John McCain, and George W. Bush among such voters. In office, Trump not only keenly understood the politics of judicial selection and its importance for his reelection, he also gained a new appreciation for what the Supreme Court meant to a president's legacy. Thanks to McConnell's ruthlessness, Trump had inherited what no president had before, the gift of an existing vacancy. Supreme Ambition by Ruth Marcus. Welcome back. Just a heads up, we have a new podcast. It's called The Science Revolution with Tom Hartman. It's available over on iTunes and all the other places where podcasts are available. It's once a week. A great little program on science. Congressman Mark Pocan is with us for the hour, taking your calls on the Tom Hartman program. Walter in Cupertino, California, listening at 9, 10 a.m. out of San Francisco. You are on the air with Congressman Pocan. Thank you, Congressman. I'm wondering why it seems that the Democrats keep in my mind, burying the lead or misstating what happened. What happened was Trump betrayed America, okay? It wasn't that he wanted this favor so he could get dirt on an opponent. He's just carrying out Putin's plan to destabilize the Ukraine. If he got some public announcement of an investigation that he could use, that's just icing on the cake. But it was a plan from Putin, I believe, to put this Zelensky new uh, person in an untenable position where he was forced to compromise himself, thereby corrupt his government to get the aid to defend against Russia. If he didn't, then Russia had the advantage because there was no aid to help them defend against Russia. And then they would have to uh, enter in some agreement with Russia at a much weaker stage. So the emphasis, I think, should be not on um, this was a plan where the president tried to get dirt on an opponent because all of Trump's supporters don't care if that happened. What it should be is there was a betrayal of America. He was selling out an ally. He's just uh, a tool for Putin. So I'm wondering why isn't that the messaging? Sure. Uh, Walter, I think that is, for the most part, uh, we've been saying he's betrayed his oath of office. He broke the law, um, bribery or extortion, depending on how you look at it, uh, and that he put our national security at risk, uh, as well as, the, as Ukraine's national security. The one difference I think I would have with where, where how you're explaining it, while we know that Russia has tried to put out this a myth that the Ukraine really interfered in the elections because that's what Russia does, and they're trying to deflect. Um, I don't think that's why Donald Trump did it. I think from reading the Mueller report, 
if you read it, he was obsessed with the fact that he would look like an illegitimate president if Russia somehow helped him. So he's been doing everything possible to prove that he is not an illegitimate president because he got assistance from Russia, that he is a big boy and did this on his own. And because of it, in his ego and his narcissism, he is obsessed on this subject. That is my personal opinion, but I truly think that that's the real efforts why he's put out this narrative. And along the way, if he can use this to get dirt on a political opponent and, again, have an edge in a campaign, he clearly has no problem with that. Laura in Paris, France, you are on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hi, I would like to challenge Congressman Pocan and what he said earlier about how to reach out to our representatives in Congress. In June, I was a member of a delegation from an organization representing not just me, but 10,000 people, an organization, the Americans who live overseas. And that was our sole goal, to see as many staff members of Congress people that we could, because we understood seeing actual Congress people was impossible. And our experience with even getting an appointment with a staff member was you had to really work hard. You had to call, you had to email, you had to email again, you had to call, you had to email, you had to email again, you had to call, you had to get more and more insistent until finally someone would pay attention to you and finally you'd get an appointment. And some of the times when we showed up for our appointment, the person we had the appointment with wasn't there, had something else to do and uh, delegated the meeting with us to a junior staff person who really didn't have the right knowledge to, to speak with us on the issue. So it's actually incredibly difficult. It's impossible for most people to actually meet with a congressperson. And it's incredibly difficult and takes incredible perseverance just to see a staff member. That's all I wanted to say. Yeah, Laura, I think your situation is very unique, and I think you're giving the wrong advice to people because you can very easily meet with an elected official if you show up at a town hall, for example. You, unfortunately, are in Paris, France, and while you were in Washington for this, most of the time, it's going to be very difficult for you to have the contact that most people can who live in someone's district. And the other part that you are reminding me, and I did not say, and, I, and maybe this will help clarify it, Laura, is you can't go to someone who's not your representative and have them listen to you because we already have in Congress 700,000 people and U.S. senators have the entire state to represent. We don't have the ability, we don't have the staffing and the time to talk to people who aren't from our district. So if you're trying to set up meetings and going office to office and not understanding why they wouldn't all talk to you, it's because you have to have the constituent be the person that's doing it. So your situation is very, very unique, but I think everyone else, you do have that ability to talk to not just the member of Congress, but at minimum staff. And it isn't very difficult. It happens all the time. We literally get thousands and thousands of contacts every year. So you can do it if you live in the U.S. I think your situation is a little bit unique. And if you went to offices where you don't, you don't live in their district, I don't blame them because we also turn away people that don't in our district because we just don't have that capacity. So that's probably yeah. the difference, Laura. Yeah. For what it's worth, uh, when Louise and I moved to Montpelier, Vermont, I was not doing the radio show. I was an author, but not, you know, f world famous or anything. Jim Jeffords, the senator, Vermont senator, his, his local office was three blocks to my house. And I just walked over one day and, and walked in and said, you know, I've got a question about an issue. It had to do with, with the, the 14th Amendment, actually. There was a staff guy who came out and talked with me for like 10, 15 minutes. And I ended up quoting him in my book in Unequal Protection, but he didn't know that I was going to do that. So yeah. there is something to that. Mark in Dana Point, California. Mark, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hi, Tom and Mark. Yeah, I've been wondering about the status on getting the grand jury testimony in the Mueller report. That would shed a lot of light on a lot of questions. And I'm also wondering about Nunes' involvement in getting dirt on Biden. What's that about? Yeah. So the first part, I, I don't have a good answer offhand because I haven't looked at that for a while. Because even though it was only a few months ago, it seems like these years are dog years and it's a long time ago. So I'd have to get back to you on that, Mark. On the Nunes part, 
I'm getting the same information you're getting, which is apparently he went to Europe and it's documented he went there and supposedly met with people on the president's behalf already. And yet Nunez won't give a direct answer whether or not he had a meeting, but he is suing anyone uh, once again, which I know we're all surprised. Devin Nunez suing someone is like uh, the rest of us uh, drinking a glass of water, it seems like. So he's suing over it, but he also can't give a clear, concrete answer that he didn't do it, which tells me from my experiences, I'm quite sure Devin Nunez probably did. Don't forget, Devin Nunez is the guy who went to the White House one night, jumped out of a car, didn't tell the staff where he was going, got some information from the White House. The next day went and presented it to the White House after they gave it to him the night before and doesn't think that we all think that that's some kind of a Keystone Cops episode. So Devin Nunez is not a serious legislator. This is the guy who's suing a fictitious cow. (laughs) Marshall in Asheville, North Carolina. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. The reason I call is I submitted a contempt of constituency resolution in the Democratic Party in uh, Asheville, and things seem to take a long time to roll uphill. So I was wondering what your opinion would be on making it a crime, legislating it somehow. Perhaps it could be in House rules uh, that if a representative knowingly and wittingly lies to their constituency, it should be considered a crime worthy of some punitive action, censure, whatever. Thank you. Yeah, Marshall, boy, I'd have to think about that a little more. I mean... Um, you know, I think there's a lot of, as you know, uh, how someone might answer a question, they can argue that they're not lying to you. And how did then who's going to decide what's a lie or not? I mean, some cases might be easy. Some cases might not be. The recourse everyone has, especially for House members, is you have an election every two years. Um, and if they're lying, you should make sure that people know what they've said, especially if you have it in a letter form, right? It's hard if they say something to you and you have no maybe evidence of it, but uh, if they've said something in a letter, they vote the opposite. I've seen it happen many times, but I think it might be something uh, you you can use in that way. Yeah. And if they send you a letter, you can always, you know, post it on social media and ridicule it and point out the inconsistencies and everything else. And local press, maybe I'll pick that up too. There you go. Morris in Long Beach, California. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Uh, good morning to the smartest class on radio. Congressman, I got a question for you in terms of saving the country. You gonna, you and me, we're going to save the country. Is it possible for the Senate to do a secret vote, a secret ballot with respect to the impeachment of Donald Trump? Or do they have to do it publicly? I can't tell you because I've read it somewhere, but I think that would be impossible. Almost all of our votes are public, so I, I don't think this would be one that could not be public. What I read in, I'm pretty sure it was the Wall Street Journal, was that if Mitch McConnell allowed a vote on changing Senate rules, that the Senate Uh, could make a rule that exclusively on impeachment they could have a secret ballot. But the odds of Mitch McConnell ever doing that are pretty slim. Yeah, the odds of Mitch McConnell finding his spine in the next year is going to be very difficult. Right. <laughs> or, or any other. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Deborah in Torrance, California, watching on Free Speech TV. You're on the air with Congressman Fokin. Thank you. Um, I've been listening, and I actually had something I was concerned about a previous caller where Congressman Fokin was saying that the president's main concern is that he's illegitimate. He's well aware that he lost the popular vote. But he's shown us more often than not that he's willing to do Putin's bidding. So I'm wondering, why did you instinctively downplay the previous college assertion that Putin's influences many of Trump's unthinkable policy decisions, especially without going to Congress? Yeah, Deborah, all, all I'm saying is my opinion is that this president is such a classic narcissist. What he cares about in the morning when he wakes up and when he goes to bed at night is Donald Trump. And he was just obsessed. If you read the Mueller report, and I don't know if you've read the entire Mueller report, but over and over, he's obsessed that he's not legitimate. And you couldn't even raise it among his staff, anything about Russia, because he hated hearing it. So while I do think he's done many things to try to make money in the future in Russia, in this particular case, I think he is uh, just someone who doesn't, uh, he, he's obsessed by the idea that he is not as powerful as he is. And don't forget, you know, this guy really uh, respects the demagogues more than anything else. He wishes he was one because it all goes to his narcissism. So it's just my opinion. I mean, and it can be multiple ways why he's doing it. But when I read the Mueller report, nothing stood out more to me than how fragile this guy's ego is. 
Jeff in Portland, Oregon. Thank you both. I'm thankful for your intelligence, rigor, and stamina in progressive politics. So thank you. And in regards to the impeachment, you know, we have the truth, facts, and people with integrity on our side. So I don't think we should be in too big of a hurry. And I'm relieved to hear the congressman say that the articles in will include more than those just pertaining to Ukraine. You know, we can't let the monuments and mother findings be swept under the rug. So finally, guys, Watergate earned Nixon the nickname Tricky Dick. Don't we need a suitable nickname for Trump? I would vote for Dirty Don or Dirty Donnie. What do you guys think? Hmm. (laughs) Um, I think there's a lot we could come up with that I've seen lots. Um, Let me clarify one thing, though, Jeff, is I don't think a monument's going to be part of this right now because there's still a lot more work that committees are doing on that. What I'm saying is the articles of impeachment will include things like obstruction for them not having people testify about Ukraine. So it's still going to be related to Ukraine, but there'll be, I'm assuming, multiple articles of impeachment based on that. Kelly in uh, Berkeley, California. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. I just finished reading Blowout by Rachel Maddow on the oil and gas industry. And I'm wondering why we're not talking more about the Russian sanctions, because if Ukraine is blamed, then Russia gets the sanctions lifted, and then they can have the American companies come back in and drill for oil, like Exxon. And I'd just like to throw in, I think you ought to listen to the today's daily, because if we put our eggs in the Biden-Hunter basket, we're going to lose. Great, Kelly. Um, so I think that I do remember people talking about that earlier on. I think because there has been a public conversation movement, not saying that the conversation is done, but a movement from the Mueller report and some other aspects that you're talking about that were in Rachel Maddow's book. I think right now what the focus is, is on the months of activity that have led to that whistleblower and the call to Ukraine and the violations of the law by the president in that call. But you're right. There is so much. When you get to oil and gas, I, I was talking about pharmaceutical industry. Talk about other industries that also have equal amounts of corruption. I think oil and gas would clearly be up there. And again, it's international corruption. And uh, we, we need to be addressing that as we address the many issues moving forward. Speaking of uh, the pharmaceutical industry, did you see the report for, uh, it was all over the Guardian and the New York Times, that for two years, Trump has been negotiating a post-Brexit trade deal, first with Theresa May, now with Boris Johnson, and that his main requirement is that they privatize the National Health Service in the United Kingdom. Wow. Well, and don't forget, on the USMCA, the NAFTA 2.0 bill, one of the major problems we have is that he's adding 10 years of protections for biologics that Mexico and Canada, who don't currently have those, would have to comply. So on behalf of the pharmaceutical industry, we're going to pay more, as are other countries, because that's what Donald Trump considers yeah, that uh, was, fixing NAFTA. Yeah, that was one of his requirements for the Brexit, post-Brexit trade deal with the U.K., too. Amazing. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Eric in Southbridge, Massachusetts, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hi, Tom and uh, Congressman. Uh, I sometimes think I'm born on the wrong uh, planet here. Uh, regarding the Second Amendment to the Constitution, if you uh, ask uh, people who are really uh, devout uh, gun right advocates to quote it, they start out saying the right of the people to keep to bear arms shall not be infringed. Well, I've been looking for a well-regulated militia to attend, and I haven't found one. But I want to I make this recommendation and that will make everybody happy, and then you can tell me why I'm crazy. The government really has very little to say about what private citizens can own. I can own an airplane full of uh, high-test gasoline. I can own uh, uh, sharp sticks and swords and all sorts of things. So how do we convince people who are really devout Second Amendment people to realize that their freedom will be increased if the Second Amendment is simply abolished? Yeah, well, Eric, I mean, I think part of it is we can also regulate people not to have various things that um, 
that can be a problem to society or a harm to the greater good. But when it comes to the Second Amendment, people not only are misreading it in the way you brought up, which is a very valid point, but also let's remember what the weapons were at the time it was written. Uh, you had a musket that you were loading very slowly. Uh, it did not. It, it's different than where we are now. They never could have envisioned uh, the situation we're in now when that Second Amendment was written. So uh, I think there are plenty of good reasons that we can still um, talk to these people. In fact, I would argue when you look at where we are on the background check legislation and uh, some of the other red flag legislation, you're talking issues that in some cases are 85 to 90 percent public support. That means including a lot of people who support the Second Amendment. So I do think more people understand the rational aspects of what government should regulate in this area. I just think they're, again, don't forget the gun manufacturers are the NRA. Uh, we just saw an article they cut back on all kinds of programs as they uh, increase the salaries of their top executives, which I, I found interesting. I read that this morning. Um, but that uh, the NRA is not advocating for people and their rights, and we need to help also make that point. Yeah, I think the rats are grabbing what they can while the ship st- sinks. Absolutely. Uh, James in Fort Madison, Iowa, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Well, thank you for having me. Congressman, um, what do you think of the Green New Deal and how it can be implemented? And also, the state of the economy and in, in income in, inequity. And the uh, woman living in France earlier, she, she's living in a very egalitarian society. Coming from there to here and there, here to there, their public officials are much more accessible than ours. So she's wondering why can't we have the same accessibility as theirs? Not so much that we can't access ours. It's just theirs are much more accessible. Um, that I have to put that by that conversation because it sounded like a dismissal on the air. And, uh, um, they went through several wars and killing several kings of their own before getting to where they're at now. So, uh, but first, the Union deal and, and uh, it is an egalitarian society. So your sure, question, sure, so, yeah, go ahead. Congress. Yeah. So the second part, just real quickly, I just didn't want her to tell people, no, it's not worth going, because she went through a lot of extra work. But part of it is she was going office to office trying to set up meetings. And as I explained, if you're not my constituent, I'm not going to set up a meeting either, um, because we already have 700,000 people. So I was just trying to clarify so people know you do have access to your elected officials. So don't let that stop you, because that's the worst thing that could happen if they don't hear from their constituents. Um, The bigger question you asked is, what do I think of the Green New Deal? You know, this is one issue that I think we should be emphasizing a whole lot more. There was some polling recently from swing states like my state of Wisconsin, Michigan, I looked at it, and they asked independents of all the different Democratic issues to rank them. The number one issue was 65% in two different states I saw was the Green New Deal. People, real people get the problems we're having with climate change and that we need to do something bigger than we've ever done before if we're going to still have a planet in the future. Uh, We need to, I think, really be talking about that more because, again, people understand it, get it, and are ahead of where the political class is on this issue. Congressman, we just have 30 seconds. What what do you expect you to see this week and where should we be focusing our attentions other than Thanksgiving? So, um, yeah, the rest of this week, uh, have a great meal. And, um, and and there is no war on Thanksgiving, even though Donald Trump thinks there is. But, you know, it's apparently Fox News did a segment on that. I know. Is it terrible? Yeah. Like if Fox News said anything, he, he'd repeat it. But yeah. um, next week, we're back in session for two or more likely three weeks. Uh, a lot is going to happen. This is the time more than ever to reach out to your elected officials and have your opinions known. Congressman Pocan, thanks so much for dropping by. Sure. Thank you, Tom, as always. Great talking with you. Congressman Mark Pocan, pocan.house.gov is the website, and you can tweet him at Rep. Mark Pocan. Morris in Long Beach, California. Hey, Morris, what's on your mind today? Hey, Professor, I got me a $45 check. <laughs> Ready to go to the president, right? <laughs> no, no, no. Actually, it's a, it's a check from Melania Trump and then uh, for $45, and then I match it with my $45. I've got the information here in front of me. Now, Are you, you serious? I'm not kidding you. I used to be a registered Republican. I guess it's out there now. Wow. I'm a principal guy. So, I ain't got so this is, no they mailed nowhere. you this? It mailed me this. I got the check. It's $45. It's, uh, what is it? Support for President Trump's agenda. And it's from Melania Trump. And uh, you got a picture of her, you know, standing behind her husband and behind the president. And here's the catcher. Here's the catcher. You can go up to $5,000, right? But let me read what it says. It's contributions to the Republican National Committee are not deductible for federal income tax purposes. 
Right. You know, so they got right. so they got that out there. But that's that's not why. You got when you started talking about that, I thought, oh my lord, I got, I got some from them folks too. But what I wanted <laughs> to say was, uh, 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 you know, this this impeachment situation is going on. I think it's a smart move. I'm going to tell you why I think it's a smart move the way they're doing it. Okay. This is a situation of of intent to withhold to compromise. You know. Uh, what Congress decided to do. Intent. What was the man's intent? When uh, used to be, when I went to school, they would say that when the Supreme Court would review a law, they would say, well, what was the intent of Congress? Remember those days? Things have changed since you and I were sure. kids. Uh, but, uh, uh, but so what was the president's intent? His intent was to withhold busted cold turkey. Now, the reason why they got to go with the, this uh, Ukraine thing is the solo sin, because, see, the Democrats got clean hands on this one. They've got some problems in Ukraine, but they don't have any problems with withholding, you right. know, compromising the intent of Congress. So that's a blessing. And why do you say, well, why don't they go after this man because of the emoluments clause? Because the Democrats have uh, uh, fiscal skeletons, too, Professor. And, and I'm, it reminds me of a guy named Wilbur Mills. Remember him? Oh, yeah. 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 He, okay, used, to be the, he used to be the Speaker of the House of Representatives, a Republican, way back in the day, right? Or no? He was the chairperson, chairperson of the Ways and Means Committee. That's right. Thank you. Thank you. Once. Now, Wilbur Means was a bad man. Now, we wouldn't have all this stuff now that yeah. we're going through now, but the guy who's head of the Ways and Means Committee, he hasn't filed his taxes either. In fact, wasn't it Wilbur no, Mills who got busted with Fanny, what's her name, that, that exotic dancer in quotes? Look at my boy here. See, that's why you're the professor. Of course, see, we can't, a lot of people can't remember last week. The answer is yes, sir. That is correct. Okay. But I believe, Fanny Fox. I believe that they look <laughs> Anyway, uh, well, there's anyway, uh, the Democratic Convention, I believe it's going to be the, the biggest help to Donald Trump is going to be what comes out of the Democratic Convention straight up. Uh, and let me tell you why I go, I'm going there with this. You know, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, right? She's mm -hmm. got a little thing going on in, in D.C. along with some Republicans where they're trying to support a government in Venezuela to oppose uh, Maduro, right? right? So the people from Black Lives Matter were down there, you know, with their signs. They got arrested and all that other good stuff. The lady who started Black Lives Matter uh, had five cop cars come up to her house to try to arrest her. She asked for a warrant. They didn't have no warrant, so they yeah. let her go. The point I'm trying to make no, that is... No, that, that happened to Medea Benjamin, too. I got an email yesterday. She got, you know, they, they came and busted in her door because she'd been part of this protest. That's exactly what I'm talking about, it's, but I couldn't it's code my pink. mind. Code my pink. Mind. Actually, it wasn't Black Lives Matter, it was Code Pink. Medea started yeah, yeah, Code that, But they're associated. I mean, the two of them work together. Amen. Yeah. So there it is. Thanks for taking my call. You're welcome. Thanks a lot, Morris. Good to hear from you. And <laughs> Wilbur Mills. Man, I haven't thought I haven't even thought about Wilbur Mills in 25 years. <laughs> uh, I guess we're all dating ourselves. D in Seattle. Hey, D, what's on your mind today? The e-cigarette companies met at a Trump hotel in 2017. Later, the FDA announces it will delay federal oversight of e-cigarettes till 2022. And you know oh, what's what going on with e-cigarettes now. Yeah. Yeah, this is in the New York Times Magazine, uh, how Trump and company is stealing America blind. And then don't forget, in 2017, Trump and Ivanka meet with the Chinese President Xi, Xi Jinping at Mar-a-Lago. Right. And then the same day, the China approves trademarks, Ivanka's brand, and that's like voting machines, semiconductors. It's not just shoes and shirts. Right, right. Yeah, she's preparing to build an empire, she and, she and her grifter husband. But why aren't they talking about that instead of Joe Biden's son? Because, because it's the corporate media, D. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I am with you. I mean, I, I regularly speak about the grift of these guys, and but the, the media is just, you know, they generally don't like Democrats and they want to have a horse race. They know that they'll have more eyeballs to their television programming if they can keep the Democratic Party down and keep the Republican Party up. I don't think that they thought that they were trying to get Trump elected. They were simply trying to maintain the horse race. But sure enough, they got Trump elected. So I'm with you. Dee, thank you for the call. In Mastic, New York, Richard, watch this on YouTube. Hey, Richard, what's up? I just wanted to agree that I think we do need a, a nice little nickname for Donald Trump. He mm -hmm. ran his campaign on draining the swamp. Mm -hmm. He's done exactly the opposite. He's just changed the water and refilled it with a bunch of different people. I think he's the hero of the swamp. He's defending the swamp. So his nickname should be Swamp Thing, just like the Swamp Thing. Okay. I and, like Don the Con, you know, but probably much more colorful ones. Thanks a lot, Richard. That's a good one. Tim in Aloha, Oregon. Uh, Oregon, excuse me. I live here. What's up? <laughs> I can spell that for you if you need it. There you go. 
<laughs> anyway, you know, I was I was originally wanted to get on to ask Pocahontas a question, but you know, a lot of people really don't put, can't put all this stuff in historical context. You know, Carter when he was in president, he did a lot of things that people don't really understand. You know, he was interested in green technology almost fifty years ago. Yes. Yeah. The fir- the first thing that that uh, Reagan did when he got into the White House was what he took the solar panels off the White House roof. Yep. You see what I mean? Yep. And that started this trend we're in right now. And what's what's happening is the media is in such control, you know, namely Fox News, that uh, Trump is not being held accountable for anything. And a real statistic that people have to understand is uh, that 18 to 25-year-olds are registered to vote. Only 17 to 23 percent of them uh, typically vote on a regular basis. Their whole life is in, 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 uh, in jeopardy, and they're not voting. Yeah, you know I mean? and and hopefully that's going to change. I think that young people are waking up. If nothing more, if nothing else, is the climate crisis is scaring the bejesus out of them because they're. I mean, you know, now that we're actually seeing the consequence of this wildfires in California, you know, massive floods and tornadoes and right. hurricanes and things across the Midwest, you know, young people are realizing that that their fate and future actually does have something to do with politics, and that has something to do with whether or not they vote. So yeah, you know. and and that's what the Democrats have to push. Yeah, yeah. Amen. Tim, thanks a lot for the call. Good to hear from you. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. Hartman Cruise will be sailing in July of 2020. The seven-day Oceana Cruise will be going to Bermuda, and I'll be hosting onboard events about the topics of the day. More info at TomHartman.com or 800-856-1155.